from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am Not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Johnny, Sugar, Janice, Thomas, Pahoten, Sue, Doc, Shannon, Walter, Jennifer, Elena, Elise, Ariel, Chantel, Stacy, Jessica, my dear two Emmas, Whitney, Rachel, Alethea, Catherine, Linda, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, David, Trudy, and John. Thank you so, so much. You guys are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron or like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. So today's podcast will be on children who survive cults. Now, I've covered a few cults in past podcasts, and if I mention them in this one, I will leave a link in the notes so that you can go listen if you want to. I believe it goes without saying that this comes with my disclaimer disclaimer because we all know what goes on in cults with children. Need I say more? So here we go. Good old Oxford Dictionary defines a cult as, quote, a system of religious veneration and devotion directed toward a particular figure or object a relatively small group of people having religious beliefs or practices regarded by others as strange or sinister, a misplaced or excessive admiration for a particular person or thing. End quote. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a cult as, quote, a religion regarded as unorthodox, great devotion to a person, idea, object, movement, or work, such as movies or books. Britannica Dictionary says, quote, a small religious group that is not part of a larger and more accepted religion and that has beliefs regarded by many people as extreme or dangerous. A situation in which people admire and care about something or someone very much or too much. A small group of very devoted supporters or fans. End quote. And then finally, we have Cambridge Dictionary defining a cult as, quote, a religious group, often living together, whose beliefs are considered extreme or strange by many people in a system of religious belief especially one not recognized as an established religion or the people who worship according to such a system of belief. But what we know of as a cult is a group or movement held together by a shared commitment to a charismatic leader or ideology. It has a belief system that has the answers to all of life's questions and offers a special solution to be gained only by following the leader's rules It requires a high level of commitment from at least some of the members. Now, to me personally, this could include nearly all religions, 
even the popular ones most people follow. So Dr. Steve Eichel, who is a psychologist known primarily for his work on destructive cults, coercive persuasion, mind control, brainwashing, and deprogramming, states that there are many characteristics that make a belief system or a group a cult. So here are those characteristics. Ready? The group is focused on a living leader to whom members seem to display excessively jealous, unquestioning commitment. The group is preoccupied with bringing in new members. The group is preoccupied with making money. Questioning, doubt, and dissent are discouraged or even punished. Mind-numbing techniques such as meditation, chanting, speaking in tongues, denunciation sessions, debilitating work routines, and so on, are used to suppress doubts about the group and its leader or leaders. The leadership dictates, sometimes in great detail, how members should think, act, and feel. For example, members must get permission from leaders to date, change jobs, get married. Leaders may prescribe what types of clothes to wear, where to live, how to discipline children, and so forth. The group is elitist, claiming a special, exalted status for itself. Its leader or leaders and members... For example, the leader is considered the messiah or an avatar, right? The group and or the leader has a special mission to save humanity. The group has a polarized kind of us versus them mentality, which causes conflict with the wider society. The group's leader is not accountable to any authorities, as are, say, for example, military commanders and ministers, priests, monks, and rabbis of mainstream denominations. The group teaches or implies that its supposedly exalted ends justify means that members would have considered unethical before joining the group. For example, you know, like collecting money for bogus charities. The leadership induces guilt feelings in members in order to control them. Members' subservience to the group causes them to cut ties with family and friends and to give up personal goals and activities that were of interest before joining the group. Members are expected to devote inordinate amounts of time to the group. And then finally, members are encouraged or required to live and or socialize only with other group members. And, you know, there are often reports of the leader physically, sexually, or emotionally abusing his or her members, amassing a huge secret fortune or stockpiling guns, selling drugs, and even the possible abuse of children. And really, these things we really basically already know. We are also all quite familiar with the more well-known cults, such as Heaven's Gate, which I did a podcast on a while back, and I'll link it in the notes if you're interested. We have the People's Temple under Jim Jones. We also have the Manson family, which we are all intimately familiar with. The Branch Davidians, which I will cover in the future, Nexium, and many, many more. And... You know, sure, we hear the stories from former members, and most of them cause us to feel sad or even angry at what these people endured. But what about the children? 
Children in cults pose a whole other problem because most of them either grow up in the cult or are born into it, and they have no outward frame of reference as to what a normal life is. The whole myriad of trauma they go through is often incomprehensible to the rest of us. So let's look at that. So we'll start with the cult, The Children of God, led by David Berg. It was originally named Teens for Christ and went through some other name changes before David settled on Children of God, and this all began in the late 60s. David had his own troubles and trauma in his youth, which I've covered, so keep that in mind. But David told members that God equals love and love equals sex, so there should be no limits regardless of relationship or age. It actively encouraged sexual acts among minors as young as two or three years old. In 1971, through sort of pamphlets that David was writing and sending out to the members of his cult, he created a story called A Shepherd Time Story, where he talked about children of God members protecting, quote, little lambs who laugh and sing and dance and play and fuck, end quote. He instituted the idea of flirty fishing, where he encouraged his members to go out in society and have sex with non-members for recruitment, and during this time, David was running a child sex ring. He carried on a sexual relationship with two of his own daughters. David also wrote that, quote, God created boys and girls able to have children by 12 years of age, end quote, and this writing came with a drawing of a mother performing fellatio on a little boy. It's implied that it's her son. In another drawing, it showed a woman and a toddler lying naked together in a bed. An actual follower about these illustrations said that it was fun to watch a child in these cases experience life. Air quotes. In fact, the parents were reassured that by allowing their own children to explore sexuality at any age, they were raising their children, quote, the natural way. They were told that free expression of sexuality, sex, adultery, homosexuality, but, you know, only between women, right, because it was not allowed between men, apparently, and incest were not just permitted, but in fact, encouraged. Films surfaced of women and little girls, including his own young granddaughters, masturbating and calling out to David, calling him dad. Eventually, the followers were disgusted enough that David had to flee to England to try to escape all of the pedophilic talk around him, and that was the beginning of his downfall. So this particular cult had some now famous people grow up in it or were at least a part of it back in that day, which include the late River Phoenix, rest his soul, and his brother Joaquin, both accomplished actors, and Rose McGowan, who was a big player during the whole Harvey Weinstein destruction era. One child brought up in the cult stated that he was molested, photographed in highly inappropriate ways, was forced to watch the grown-ups around him have sex and was encouraged to display sexual behaviors toward his nanny. 
All of this was done to him so that David could publish an instructional manual on how to raise children. This particular child grew up to find this nanny, took her to dinner, then back to his apartment where he stabbed her to death and then took his own life. One of David's own daughters said the physical abuse was horrific as well and that the children were repeatedly beaten and whipped for any minor infraction. The children brought up in this cult had no contact whatsoever with the outside world. There were heavy consequences if the children failed to keep a smile and say the exact things they were expected to say. Children were also used to play on the sympathies of outsiders so that they would donate money to the cult. There was little to no formal education given to these children as well. Now, one of the children that grew up in this cult is a woman by the name of Verity Carter, who gave an interview to the BBC, where she recounted her time as a child with these people. She said that they did not have music or television or any culture. Quote, we had no idea how the world worked. She said the children were taught how to keep secrets from the systemites in the outside world, especially social workers. Children were told terrible things would happen to them and their siblings if there was bad publicity for the group and that any signs of imagination or free thinking would be beaten out of them. So that's a taste of what the children from Children of God endured. Now, without getting into the entire story that most of us have heard at nauseum, there were children born into the Manson family. It was said that the grown-ups of the group were kept regularly dosed with LSD and other hallucinogens to keep them open, pliable, and programmable. One former member testified in court that Charlie had mystical powers, that he breathed life into a dead bird, communicated with animals, and could read other family members' minds. Now, some people joined the group already having small children prior to joining, and others were born in. But everyone was involved in taking care of the children, and they were not necessarily kept with their biological parents. As we know, sex played a central role in Charlie's cult, made up primarily of girls. He used younger, attractive men to recruit these young ladies and teens, but then would orchestrate these large, drug-induced orgies, where he would copulate with the girls himself, or he would direct everyone as to who would be having sex with who. If any member showed any reluctance, it was often stated that Charlie would become violent, physically abusing the girls who didn't want to comply. Childbirth was a group activity. Of course, all of the girls were highly encouraged to have children, and as much as I could find, no doctor was ever around to assist. Because you see, contact with any form of the outside world that wasn't absolutely for their survival was forbidden. When a girl would go into labor, everyone came around to help, and it was said that Manson himself would cut the umbilical cord, usually with his teeth, but sometimes he would use a guitar string. And much like most other commune cults, the concept of both pre- and postnatal care, as well as immunizations and birth certificates, were, for the most part, rejected. 
The group viewed birth certificates as an injustice, most harmful, and an example of certification and harassment by society, assigning a child a number and registration. I will say that, in this particular cult, the children were viewed as sacred. They gave the children more attention and affection than most other cults. The children were, in fact, the center of attention and went everywhere with the group. They saw the children as, you know, untainted by society. But, you know, as relatively okay-ish as that sounds, the children in the Manson family cult were unfortunately also given drugs to consume and participated in orgies. Thankfully, after Manson and the others were arrested for multiple murders, Spawn Ranch was raided and the children taken away and ended up in the foster system, adopted out, or raised by other family members. We have a cult that had sort of already begun to form when David took over as leader and it didn't take long for him to be accused of physically and sexually abusing children in the cult. He had a doctrine within the group, which he called the House of David, where he married both already married and single women. He supported this by saying that he had received revelation that he was to produce 24 children by his chosen women in the community. These 24 children would then grow to serve as the 24 ruling elders over the millennium after the return of Christ. One of the girls was underaged and the little sister of David's legal wife. One story states that David became impatient with his small son's crying and spanked him severely for several minutes on three separate occasions. Another witness would later say that he saw David beat a child with a stick. David was later accused of fathering children with underaged girls as well, and one woman testified that he had fathered 15 children with various women and girls because she had personally delivered seven of the infants herself. And this sounds eerily familiar to the story coming from the leader of the FLDS, Warren Jeffs, right? So there actually exists audio recordings of him cooing and verbally preparing a girl who was found to be only 12 years old, which I heard on the Netflix docuseries, Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. So listen to that one at your own risk. In some of the recordings, Warren is heard describing the, quote, atonement sessions and how his ladies must bring him back from the brink of death through their touch and that they must assist each other during sex. But many of these recordings are clearly him giving sexual training to underage plural wives and the jurors at his later trial said some of the girls sounded like they were only five or six years old. This training would take about three hours and Warren would reference biblical material as his justification, saying it was their duty as a commandment from God himself and a requirement of the everlasting covenant with the Lord. If they rejected that, they would be banished from heaven. Warren fathered a child with one of his wives who was only 14 years old. He also took on a 12-year-old girl as his wife. 
He told his wives that God said they would remain in good standing with God as long as they remained, quote, humble, submissive, pure, and loyal to both him and Warren. And while this abuse on the girls is horrible, there is a term coined for the boys and young men who were excommunicated or pressured to leave the FLDS. They were called the Lost Boys. It is heavily believed that while they would be told it was due to, you know, disobedience or some other nonsense, it was really because they wanted them out to reduce competition for wives. So the offenses for excommunication include watching a movie, watching TV, playing football, or even talking to a girl. A source from 2004 stated that more than 400 teenage boys had been ostracized from the FLDS church. The next year, that figure jumped to 1,000. A former child member of the cult, the 12 Tribes, said in an interview with the Denver Post that he had been taught his whole life that anyone that left the 12 Tribes would die. Another former child of this cult stated that he had been beaten up up to 20 to 30 times a day and that he grew so numb to it that he grew not to feel anything. He said his infant sister had been beaten and he had been forced to watch, helpless to protect her. The 12 tribes cult taught the children that slavery was necessary as God had, quote, cursed black people that homosexuals should be put to death and were systematically subjected to child abuse, including being beat with wooden reeds, subjugation of women, and psychological torment. You see, in this group, and like many others, children are not permitted to engage in any type of playing or fantasy. Materials from the cult state, quote, Train your child to submit willingly to his discipline. Make sure he bends over submissively. Guilt will not be removed unless he submits willingly. Discipline is vital. If you don't discipline your child according to the scriptures, you are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. End quote. You see, this group openly admitted to being fundamental Christians who took the Bible literally. And don't we all love us, some biblical literalists? Women were to give birth to many children, but they were told to refuse any medical treatment during the pregnancy or during the birth, leading to stillborn babies and an increase in stillborn babies. New people to the cult were told to cut ties with anything to do with their former lives, and they were required to donate all of their possessions and money to the church. Moving on, we now have the more mainstream religions that still fit the criteria for a cult that inflict untold damage to families and particularly children. So I advise you to buckle in. So let's start with Scientology and let's go through the checklist. The group is focused on a living leader to whom members seem to display excessively zealous, unquestioning commitment. Well, the leader of Scientology is dead, but is still revered and the members still display the zealous, unquestioning commitment. So check. The group is preoccupied with bringing in new members. Check. 
The group is preoccupied with making money. Super check. Questioning, doubt, and dissent are discouraged or even punished. Check. Mind-numbing techniques such as meditation, chanting, speaking in tongues, denunciation sessions, debilitating work routines are used to suppress doubts about the group and its leaders. Check. The leadership dictates, sometimes in great detail, how members should think, act, and feel. For example, members must get permission from leaders to date and so on and so forth. And that's check. The group is elitist, claiming a special, exalted status for itself, its leaders, and members. And that's a big check. The group has a polarized us-versus-them mentality, which causes conflict with the wider society. Um, yeah, check. The group's leader is not accountable to any authorities. Check. The group teaches or implies that its supposedly exalted ends justify means that members would have considered unethical before joining the group. Check. The leadership induces guilt feelings in members in order to control them. Big check. Members' subservience to the group causes them to cut ties with family and friends and to give up personal goals and activities that were of interest before joining the group. Check, check. Members are expected to devote inordinate amounts of time to the group. Ultimate check. And members are encouraged or required to live and or socialize only with other group members. Yeah, that's a check. Scientology ticks all of those boxes. It poses as a religion, but really it's just a ruthless global scam. Some former members have said that it is a school for psychopaths. Their so-called therapies are manipulations. According to an article from Time magazine, quote, 11 top Scientologists, including Hubbard's wife, were sent to prison in the early 1980s for infiltrating burglarizing, and wiretapping more than 100 private and government agencies in an attempt to block their investigations. In recent years, hundreds of longtime Scientology adherents, many charging that they were mentally or physically abused, have quit the church and criticized it at their own risk. Some have sued the church and won. Others have settled for amounts in excess of $500,000. In various cases, judges have labeled the church schizophrenic and paranoid and corrupt, sinister, and dangerous, end quote. And yet, this so-called religion is still a thing. It still exists. The celebrities in this hoax of a religion continue to be a part of it because, you know, they're rich and they don't experience the slavery and abuse the average person in that group does. The next is Jehovah's Witnesses organization, also known as the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, which boasts 8.3 million members worldwide. And according to the documentary on A&E titled, Cults and Extreme Beliefs, the Jehovah's Witnesses began as a Bible study group in the 1870s in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and is an offshoot of the more traditional Christian religions. And it is widely believed that this too is a cult. And it certainly ticks most all of the boxes on the list, including the level of control and influence. 
If a member decides to leave, they are shunned and the remaining family or loved ones are heavily discouraged to have any further relationship with the person who left. No contact whatsoever. And while many most likely can't point a finger at a single charismatic leader, well, they did in fact have one. His name was Charles Taze Russell, and he was the founder of the Watchtower, which began as a Bible journal and then turned into the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. After him, the authority was moved to the, quote, governing body, in which all doctrine and laws governing the Jehovah's Witnesses are now created and passed down by. These people refer to themselves and their position of power as spiritually anointed. Everything that comes from them is supposed to be directly from Jehovah himself. The documentary says it is the charismatic leader by proxy at this point. Oh, and obviously the leaders cannot be questioned. The door-to-door recruitment should speak for itself. This particular religion is huge on recruiting new members. Children are forced to go door to door and knock on strangers' doors to help in this recruitment. The amount of time this group spends at the Kingdom Hall is also excessive in that it is a minimum of three times a week. Many people that grew up in this state that they felt like their entire childhood was stolen from them. Unquestioning commitment. There is to be no questioning or doubt. Again, the Jehovah's Witnesses check nearly, if not all, the boxes. And with regards to the children, it is said that children are not allowed to stand for the national anthem in schools, be in a classroom where another child is having a birthday celebration, or any other holiday celebration because they do not celebrate holidays that honor people who are not Jesus which is certainly isolating to children. Not Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, Halloween, and not even Christmas and Easter because of the fact that it is well known that those are originally pagan holidays. Oh, and the Jehovah's Witnesses are not to receive blood for any medical emergency and anyone, including a helpless child who received blood transfusions usually lead to expulsion from and enduring being ostracized by this group. Anything in this world, in normal society, is considered evil and ruled by Satan. And yet, there is evidence that the governing body of this religion purposefully placed sexual offenders in positions of power that displayed pedophilic behavior. And when children or others come forward and try to bring awareness to the issue, the elders squash it. They are committed to keeping it a deep, dark secret. An article written in The Atlantic states that there is a secret database of thousands of Jehovah's Witness child sex offenders that's been assembled and concealed from prying eyes by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. This list was created in 1997 in response to prior whistleblower complaints. So, a questionnaire was sent to all national members asking them if they suspected any fellow witnesses of being a pedophilic predator. It was an alarmingly large list that was then sent to the church, and then those files magically disappeared only to be leaked on Reddit. Don't we all love Reddit? 
There are groups that are working to expose the manipulation and domination of its members. And so, lastly, we will talk about Mormonism. Now, this one in particular hits close to home because I personally know some Mormons and have a good friend who fled the group. Using the checklist we've been using earlier in the podcast, let's look at Mormonism. The group is focused on a living leader or a dead leader whom the members seem to display excessively zealous, unquestioning commitment. I mean, we have Joseph Smith. That speaks for itself. The group is preoccupied with bringing in new members. Yes, I mean, you have heard of their missionary work, right? And this, again, involves making children ride their bikes and go door to door. The group is preoccupied with making money. Check. And if you don't give the tithe that is required to be a Mormon, you are brought in for questioning and basically harassed until you give in. And then we have questioning, doubt, and dissent are discouraged or even punished. Check. One of the top leaders of this group literally says, doubt your doubts, which is just nonsense. Mind-numbing techniques such as meditation, chanting, and so on. Check. The leadership dictates sometimes in great detail how members should think, act, and feel. Check. People are, of course, excommunicated for apostasy when questioning the church. The group is elitist, claiming a special exalted status for itself and so on. I mean, just look at the temple and all of the activities within. The group has a polarized us versus them mentality. This is very much Mormons versus the Gentiles, and it is a whole thing. The group's leader is not accountable to any authorities. Check. They tell members that, quote, it is always wrong to criticize the Lord's anointed, meaning the prophet and the apostles, even if that criticism is true. Can you believe it? Next is the group teaches or implies that it is supposedly exalted ends justify the means. Well, for Mormonism, this one's a gray area, so I'll not check this one. Next, we have the leadership induces guilt feelings in members in order to control them. That's a big check. Members' subservience to the group causes them to cut ties with family and friends and so on. This is a check, but not quite as bad as the Jehovah's Witnesses. However, if someone leaves the Mormon church, they are shunned just like all the others. Members are expected to devote inordinate amounts of time to the group. Ultimate check. Three hours of church on Sundays on top of all of the activities during the week, and the leaders were constantly working, making it very much like a second, very, very full-time job, and it's unpaid. Members are encouraged or required to live and or socialize only with other group members. This is another one that's kind of borderline gray because their saying is, be in the world, but not of the world. Marrying or dating outside the faith is frowned upon, but it's not explicitly banned. But there are many other reasons as to why the Mormon faith is considered a cult. But we have covered really from the worst, most obvious cults to some religion and faiths that might not seem like cults because most of us know people who ascribe to their beliefs. But regardless, if they still fit the criteria of being a cult, and that cannot be ignored. So I said all of that to say this. Children who grow up in cults often experience a myriad of problems, though 
There hasn't been just a ton of literature written on the impact of those children and on the development of the individual's character or personality type. You see, a child's personality is shaped both by temperament and the nature of the child's experience of not only the parents, but also important objects in the child's life. The growing child develops certain personality characteristics in this process. The parents serve as models for the personality development and formation through the processes of introjection and identification. How a child's developing character is affected by his or her parents depends on the stage of development at which crucial situations involving trauma and conflict come up. It also depends on whether the child adopts the parents' affirming or prohibiting attitudes and whether he or she seeks to be like or unlike the parents. Unlike the first-generation cult member, the child who is born or raised in a cult has neither the previous personality nor a formed personality on which the new cultic personality is imposed. Aside from general inherited temperament, of course, their future basic character becomes affected and shaped by the child's reaction to the cult experience. This information is coming from SAR, a spiritual abuse resource website. Cult leaders interfere with the parental authority over their children. To lessen anxiety while in the cult, the growing child, in order to survive, often learns to be passive in response to the harsh, controlling nature of the cult leader. They learn very quickly through various forms of abuse behavior. They learn very quickly through various forms of abuse behavior that conformity is best in order to lessen the negative impact on them mentally and physically. And those who have been raised in cults leave that world in young adulthood well, they have to enter an entirely new sociocultural environment, a wider world with new expectations and rules. These former child cult members usually have tremendous difficulty with that adjustment, as any of us can imagine. They had been actively and purposefully brought up in a way that deprived them of nearly all coping skills to adapt to a whole new existence. They come out with no sense of their own identity, often have poor self-esteem, and truly fear the outside world. So, you know, imagine being conditioned to believe anyone that believes anything other than your faith is evil, and yet you escape and are therefore sometimes at the mercy of the very secular world you were told was utterly evil and controlled by Satan to help integrate you into society. Just try to imagine how absolutely terrifying that would be. We know that the task of the cult in which children are brought or born into is to break them down for complete reprogramming and to have them give themselves over entirely with utter compliance to the leader or leaders. Absolute brutal corporal punishment of children is completely common and normal parenting, nurturing, and bonding is discouraged, often interrupted, because it threatens bonding to the cult leader. Other documented physical and psychological abuse in cults include starvation, denial of medical care, emotional deprivation, overall neglect, and sexual abuse, including incest. 
47 states in the United States still exempt religious groups from child abuse regulations. And really, no parent should be exempt from the legal responsibility to seek medical care for their children, such as life-saving blood transfusions, postnatal care, and so on. And I'm certainly not opening a debate about immunizations, because I think many of them are good and some of them questionable. We don't have to get into all of that. A child's civil rights should have priority over parents' religious beliefs. When a child has been subjected to the actions and behavior of cults and members, these wounds often leave deep scars that last well into adulthood. Without proper treatment and therapy, the long-lasting effects could cause the individual to resent, have emotional complications, and to possess psychological problems that could induce certain conditions and impairments. The consequences of the parents joining a cult or the child being taken in by someone in the organization often lead to difficulties socializing, believing in anything, and trusting others. Without recovery options available, these deep-seated issues fester and may harm the adult once a part of that cult. It is possible he or she may join a cult later to satisfy the need that has been left after leaving. One of Charles Manson's son, at just 37 years old, committed suicide by a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. It was said he had done everything he knew to escape the legacy of his father that his father had left him. He changed his name, he distanced himself from any level of connection, and yet he decided he would end the, quote, curse once and for all. Another son of Manson's has disappeared so successfully that it is believed he is somewhere still alive and well and completely off the radar. Susan Atkins' son, Zizozos Zadfrak Glutz, whom she bragged about performing sexual abuse on when he was just an infant, was removed from Susan's care and later adopted. Children raised under David Koresh said that they were struck with a wooden paddle known as the Helper. To train for the final battle, they were instructed to fight each other, and if they did not fight hard enough, well, they were paddled for that too. David Koresh told them to call their parents dogs, Only he was to be referred to as their father. Girls as young as 11 were given a plastic star of David, signifying that they had, quote, the light and were ready to have sex with the cult leader. A team of therapists said that these were some of the things that the 19 of the 21 surviving children of the Branch Davidian cult had told them about their lives inside the compound. Surviving children described their world as a misguided paramilitary community in which sex, violence, fear, love, and religion were all intertwined. 11 to 12-year-old girls were to become David's wives. Children of God children who survived and were able to leave the cult talk of manuals on how to abuse children to raise them correctly, physically and sexually. Shua Jones, who was a child brought up in the Twelve Tribes cult, said, quote, If I explain to you what it's like to watch a diaper get pulled off of a six-month-old baby so that it can be beaten with a rod until it has welts, it's covered in welts, 
and bruises, end quote. So acceptable social behavior and engaging in social interactions are vital to every child's development. Research has shown that the absence of social relationships and behaviors can significantly impact a child's development in various ways. For example, studies have shown that socially isolated children's academic performance tends to be inferior. They find themselves to be part of a less advantaged social class and are more likely to be psychologically distressed in adulthood. When a person is not able to sufficiently interact with what is considered socially normal can result in experiencing social isolation. Deprivation of integration into society often results in feelings of loneliness. Loneliness is linked to people experiencing higher levels of stress. The physiological consequences of experiencing stress over time as a result of being denied normal social interaction rarely appear in childhood but are typically experienced in adulthood. So these raised levels of stress will not only threaten a socially isolated child's health earlier in life, but in adulthood as well. And of course, we've gone over and over the traumatic things that occur or can happen or what children experience when they are physically and sexually and emotionally abused. So really, we could go on and on. There really isn't any solution I have for this because some cults are easy to spot, easy to see the red flags, and others are not. Some cults have endured long enough that people just accept them as a legitimate religion when they are most certainly not. Refusing specific and life-saving medical care for your child should be a huge red flag, such as blood transfusions, as I've mentioned, because that fucking bothers me. Cutting family members out of your life just because they leave your church is not only excessive, but completely ridiculous. You know, it is hard for the rest of us to imagine how people get caught up in these cults in the first place when we know they are rationally thinking individuals. But then again, this is why we consume these documentaries and podcasts, isn't it? Thank you for listening. Uh, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 